Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, neuroscience, Dzogchen, non-duality, the Witcher, Tantra, philosophy, awakening, and much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm happy to be speaking with Ruben Lakonen. Ruben Lakonen is a postdoctoral fellow at the Free University of Amsterdam and lecturer at Amsterdam University College. Ruben seeks to uncover an empirically grounded and experientially authentic understanding of meditation, insight, and non-duality. Using a combination of neuroimaging, machine learning, and phenomenology, he's investigating some of the rarest states of consciousness available to human beings. Ruben has an eclectic contemplative background, including traditions such as Zen, Advaita, and Theravada. And now, without further ado... I give you the episode that I call Meditation, Insight, and Predictive Processing with Ruben Lakonen. Ruben, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you for having me, Michael. I'm really excited. As I mentioned in our pregame talk, a large number of people who I know really well were very excited about your work and pointed me towards you as someone who we should bring on the podcast and have a conversation with. So you come highly recommended. That's so nice to hear. (laughs) Now, if I'm not mistaken, it's fairly late in the evening and you're in Amsterdam right now at home, correct? That's right. Enjoying the view of an Amsterdam canal here and just seeing some lights reflecting now. Nice. Well, the three topics that always come together, at least in my circles, when people talk about you and your work or your papers and all that, are neuroscience and meditation and psychedelics, with a strong emphasis on the first two, usually, and a little bit on the last one. But, you know, I realized, I'm like, how would Ruben describe himself and what he does? So I thought probably the best person to ask would be you. So, you know, what do you do and what is your interest in these topics? Yeah, it's interesting that neuroscience and meditation stand out because actually the topic I've been working on probably the longest time is insight experiences. That's kind of where it all began. I think both personally and intellectually, meditation and how the mind works were right at the heart of my interests. But in terms of academia, I've been working primarily on insight experiences and then for the last four years, really deep diving on meditation. And so the way I describe my interests and curiosities, I suppose, under one banner would be plasticity or human transformation. And the way that this ties in with meditation and insight is that insight experiences are these moments where the mind, and well, in some cases, the whole organism takes a leap and goes from a state of not knowing something to knowing something, sometimes in a profound way and sometimes uh, making a small leap and sometimes making a big leap. So that's a moment where you could say the mind changes shape in a dramatic way. The other thing that interests me then under this banner of plasticity and transformation is, of course, meditation. And meditation is really the inner tools of transformation, of change, of discovery. And so 
these two things, I suppose, tie together in trying to understand what makes transformation possible, what makes change possible, and also then begins to provide, I think, the most interesting tools for investigating brain plasticity. So basically, if we want to know to what extent can a person change themselves, I think both meditation and insight experiences are really quintessential. And the way psychedelics also ties in there is that I think most people agree that when they take psychedelics are actually going to any kind of experience that induces, you could say, state of plasticity, then insight experiences are the things that they bring back that feel important. And I use insight kind of broadly to include everything from mystical experiences to aha moments to the kinds of insight we're interested in meditation as well. So the Vipassana kind of insights. So those are all the things that I'm interested in. And I'm kind of very openly and shamelessly somebody who dives in experientially into all of these things and then also investigates them scientifically. And I kind of think of science as almost sacred in the sense of keeping the tools honest and using the method as rigorously as we possibly can. But at the same time, going and diving into these things myself personally. So yeah, maybe that's enough to get us started. <laughs> yeah. And what is your scientific specialty? What is your training? My PhD was in cognitive science. I did a psychology degree and um, lots of neuroscience subjects, of course, along the way. But primarily cognitive science then for my PhD. And then I moved in for my postdoc here in Amsterdam, where I've been for the last three years working on cognitive neuroscience. So then I've been diving really into the neuroscientific tools. Of course, I've been surveying the literature all throughout my PhD, but now I got to get my hands really dirty with EEG, with machine learning, basically psychophysics as well. But before that, it was uh, mostly higher cognition, so decision-making, problem-solving, thinking and reasoning, and then kind of zooming into the deeper aspects of even some biology and neurobiology. So... Yeah, I kind of like to traverse these different levels of analysis. I think that's something important because I don't think a satisfying explanation is ever going to come from a single level of explanation. So, And also I get bored very quickly, so then I need to <laughs> jump between these levels of explanation to find more satisfaction and more insight, I think. Super fascinating. I'm curious in your work, how would you talk about insight as an experience? You gave several brief definitions, the Buddhist meditative understanding of insight and the aha moment and several others. But for you personally, how do you think about the idea of insight? What are you really looking for there? I heard someone describe it one time as a kind of surprise, but it's the kind of surprise that rearranges your whole understanding of the world. Nice. That resonates for you. It does resonate. I think one way to talk about insight is in terms of the temporal unfolding of insight. So that is what happens before an insight, what happens during an insight, and then what happens after an insight. And there's also different kinds of insight that we can get into. But I guess thinking about what most of us agree is insight is a moment where we discover something new, basically. But we discover something new in a way that is sudden and unexpected and feels obviously true already in the moment. So that's kind of what happens when it happens. Before that, 
There's a lot of theorizing, of course, going on about what's happening before it exactly. Quintessentially, I think in the research, at least one mechanism is restructuring or representational change. You could even think of those as implicit unconscious beliefs. They shift, they change. A kind of example of this is if you've ever seen these ambiguous images like a necrocube or a duck rabbit illusion, any of these kinds of images that can have multiple perspectives to them. And so these are visual examples where you can look at the same stimulus one way and then suddenly it'll shift and you see it a completely different way, even though the information hasn't changed, right? Yes. So similarly in the mind, even without no new information coming in, in a kind of fact-free way, the system can change the way it's representing things. And so in that representational shift that happens, and there's many mechanisms that can cause that to happen, what that basically allows is for the system to reinterpret data in myriad ways. So if you suddenly can restructure your assumptions, this can allow you to see a problem from a completely new perspective and therefore in a moment of insight reveal a new solution, a new way of looking. And in that moment, when that new way of looking, it could be an idea that arises in the kind of mundane sort of intellectual insights. It could be something that's observed more directly in experience due to that restructuring, that breaking of assumptions. But in that moment, there's a embodied phenomenological sense of obviousness, often pleasure, so long as that's a positive kind of insight, and also kind of inspiration and drive to act on that insight. So that's the phenomenological component. And then there's all the things that happen afterwards as well. And this is something I've also been very interested in. So there's something about these moments of insight that drive us to trust them and move forward with them. And that's, of course, problematic in the case of false insights, which, of course, do happen. And if you think about schizophrenia or psychosis, if somebody has a profound experience of insight, it still feels exactly the same as a true insight, except that it's not. And then, you know, this can be, you know, the very foundation of delusional beliefs or can actually trigger the onset of psychosis or at least mark the onset of psychosis, a series of false insight experiences. And so we've also done experiments, for example, where we elicit insight experiences in the lab, but then present some uh, facts alongside these insight experiences. And if those facts, regardless of whether they're true or false, that feeling of insight can make them seem more true. So even if the fact is completely unrelated to the insight that we triggered, the fact that the phenomenology occurs at the same moment can imbue it with a sense of truth. And so somehow on this sort of metacognitive level, this signal that we get from, you could say, our unconscious mind, which is uh, communicated through our body and our phenomenology, can trigger us to believe something that's not really true. So that's also interesting because this then drives our decisions and, and so on. But basically, that's just an experiment we did to highlight that we, on a metacognitive level, rely in a way on our phenomenology of insight to know what's true. And this is what we use to navigate the world and in order to also evaluate our ideas more fundamentally. And have you unpacked or has anyone unpacked what the phenomenology is or even the neurocorrelates? are of that feeling of certainty that we get, that deep sense that this is true, which after all must be a feeling, right? It affects your whole physiology when it occurs. As we all know, we have, it can be tremendously powerful to have this sudden sense of overwhelming, surprising new information that 
flips how we see the whole world. Do we know much about what that looks like on the brain level? Yeah, we have some idea of what's going on in the brain. Well, actually, it's a little bit mixed because it depends how you elicit these insights for starters. Yes. Yeah. You get a little bit different results. There's some evidence that it might be localized to higher order right hemisphere regions. For example, when you have an insight, you might get a burst of gamma oscillations. But there is a turn in the literature, especially in the last 15 years, to focus on this phenomenology, because basically for 100 years before that, insight is a surprisingly big topic that people have been into for a long time. But for about 100 years before that, basically everyone was focused on what happened before an insight occurred. There was not really any talk of the phenomenology, the sense of insight. And so now for the last 15 years, the research has really turned its attention to the feeling, and that's become the focus in many ways. The reason that first people started to measure the phenomenology was indeed to do this neuroscience research, because then you could capture insights on a case-by-case basis just by asking people if they had an insight, and then you could track when that happened, and you could see what's going on in the brain. Yeah. But also what for me is exciting and I think what's a cool turn in the literature is that what we've also found is that this phenomenology of insight maps onto the accuracy of solutions that people provide. So fundamentally, if you're having a feeling of insight, the hope would be if we're adaptive organisms that that feeling of insight would map onto some sort of accuracy or some sort of valuable information, right? Otherwise we're in trouble. It would match something about the external world or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It would help us solve problems. And so then what we find in the lab, and this is really consistent with big effect sizes replicated across different labs around the world, I've done many experiments on this, that when you have a feeling of insight across all these different problems, it tends to predict that you found a correct solution, like really well strong effect size compared to if you don't have that feeling of insight. And I've even measured these inside experiences. This is a study published this year using a handheld measure of grip strength to really try to get a sense of the embodied feeling of insight. So basically we had people solve problems and then in real time when they had an inside experience, we told them to squeeze this handheld dynamometer. It's, it's super sensitive. So it gives us a sense of how they're progressing in problem solving, but also to capture that moment of insight. And so then I could correlate these spikes in the dynamometer with basically the accuracy of solutions. Well, so I did that first and found, again, really nice mapping between feelings of insight and accuracy now captured in real time, so not asking post-hoc self-reports. Not only that, what I then sort of post-hoc hypothesize is that maybe people just happened to squeeze the dynamometer more tightly when they had a more intense insight. And I thought maybe this intensity of the insight would then further map onto the accuracy of solutions. So the really cool finding was indeed that when people sort of automatically with that instruction happened to squeeze it more tightly, they reported having a more intense insight. And the size of these spikes in this dynamometer, I don't know if you can visualize that, also predicted were a further predictor of the accuracy of their solution. So this is really like unconscious embodiment of the insight predicts the objective accuracy of solutions. I thought that was pretty cool. That is really cool. And it reminds me of the work of Graham Wallace, the godfather of problem solving, especially creative problem solving Mm -hmm. theory, right? From the University of London, writing in the 1920s, came up with this idea that 
I think is in every creative problem solving course and class that exists, but he's almost never cited as the actual inventor of this theory, which is the idea that you focus on the issue and then totally let it go and go do something else and then wait for the unconscious essentially to deliver the solution, right? Mm -hmm. And what's so fascinating is he does have a fourth step in there, which is then you check the accuracy of the solution. (laughs) But almost everyone leaves that out because the idea of getting this free insight from your unconscious seems like so great, you know, but of course we then check if it's accurate information. What's fascinating here is why is the unconscious better at problem solving? And we could talk about that for a long time, but I assume a big part of it is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I assume a big part of it is simply because it's got so much more horsepower because there's so many more neurons involved, right? It's just a much larger cognitive muscle. And now I'm getting to my question here, which is, so do you think that this sense of the accuracy of the answer is stronger because there's just more of the brain agrees with the solution? Just going back a little bit, the verification stage you mentioned from Wallace's theory of the temporal unfolding of insight, basically, that's of course not possible in many situations, right? Not to mention situations of pressure. So for example, if you're in a heated conversation or like your life is in danger and you have to solve a problem, you basically only have your unconscious to rely on. But then there's also so many domains that even if you wanted to verify analytically, you know, doing a scientific experiment or something, you simply couldn't. So for example, if you're creating a work of art or anything that requires immediate action or is more creative in nature or aesthetic in nature. So all of these things, basically we have to rely on the phenomenology more or less on our unconscious to do the heavy lifting. And you can also think about this perhaps in terms of our evolution in the sense that the metacognitive analytic sort of categorical linear thinking capacities came later in evolution. And so for much of evolutionary history, we've basically needed to rely on this much more automatic insight-based approach in order to solve the problems of daily life. So I think I more or less am saying that I do agree that I think that insights tend to be true because whatever processes that are occurring unconsciously have evolved to be reliable on average. So we have this idea called the Eureka heuristic. This is the idea that we basically use the feeling of insight as a heuristic to navigate the world, at least to find out what's true in order to select the ideas that appear in our minds. And so the idea is that basically because all of these ideas that are constantly appearing in our mind or all of these perspectives, if we think about deeper insights, but it's the ones that just have this sensation of truth that we then select. And so we heuristically just rely on this feeling of insight. And the reason that we can or perhaps ought to in most situations, or at least where analytic problem solving is not possible to add on to that insight process, we can rely on this insight because it somehow maps onto our previous learning. So the way I've talked about this previously is that it's like 
the feeling of insight is a kind of resonance with everything that we know. It's in a way our mind and our phenomenology saying, hey, here's an idea. And given all the information that you've collected to date, this idea really resonates. And you don't really need to think about it because maybe you need to act on it right now. And so you just get this feeling of insight and then you're kind of ready to go. It's so interesting. In a way, it's a central topic for human beings. How do we make decisions? How do we get new insights into things? How do we have creative experiences? I'm curious how you got interested in this as a central topic for your work. Yeah, I got interested just because I had insight experience and I got absolutely fascinated about how that's possible. Well, I guess there was several big worldview transitions that I had early on. And I really experienced this sort of restructuring followed by a flurry of insights that almost feel like kind of downloads after that restructuring. The first was because I grew up in a very Christian home. And then around the age of 16, I had this idea that if the Bible is true, then I should be able to expose myself to any information Um, any theories, any other traditions, and they should all come back to basically prove what I'm reading in the Bible. So the anti-fragility view of the Bible. Right, exactly, exactly. (laughs) So all roads should lead back to Rome, if that's the case. And this, to my teenage brain, made a lot of sense. I was like, okay, I'm going to step outside this tradition. And I, I started to read everything that I could on science, and it didn't take long until I switched perspectives into a very scientific materialist framework at that time. And lots changed since then. But what happened after that initial insight was that there was this new perspective that my system had adopted, which allowed the world to be seen under this new lens, which afforded all of these new insights. And I got such a physiological and mental rush out of these new discoveries. And it sort of just propagated and fueled my curiosity that I started to also get sort of meta interested in the insights themselves as they were kind of occurring. And so that was the first time it happened. And then around the age of 19, I had a transformative experience, or you could say a mystical experience where a similar sort of thing happened But I kind of got a sense more about this way of coming in touch with reality or experience in a way that was more direct. And there was a kind of knowledge or awareness that could be developed through direct experience and through, for example, contemplative practices. And this restructuring, again, led to this sort of download of insights, really, that blew my mind again. And at this point, I was, you know, starting to study psychology and neuroscience. And so I was very meta about what was happening to me at that point. I was just fascinated in these inside experiences and the potential of them because I also felt in those transitions. And I think people around me sort of say the same thing, that they cause change. They deeply rewire the system much more than, you know, when we learn something on a more superficial level. But when an insight really happens, it somehow touches the core of our being. So in terms of psychological phenomena and, you know, what I could study, I thought this was super interesting. And I kind of had to convince my PhD advisor who'd never done any research on insight, didn't know anyone who studied insight to let me do a PhD on this. And so I kind of 
had to do a lot of work, right? Because I didn't have anyone to work with on this locally. And I just had to kind of follow my curiosity, but I don't regret it at all because I loved my PhD for exactly that reason. <laughs> if you don't mind, what was the nature of this revelatory experience? It's ineffable as most of these things are. I'm not sure I can do very much justice to it, but basically I would describe it as my concepts falling away. And in the concepts falling away, there was an unveiling of a direct experience of something that can be described in many different words as light awareness, or also I sort of had this sense at the time that you know, you could call this also God or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a way it was momentary, in a way it was timeless, in a way it was infinite, all of those kinds of things. But then it was interesting because th this sort of happened and then there was this sort of coming back into my ordinary consciousness. But then what followed were this flurry of insights immediately after that, which is kind of interesting. So the temporal unfolding for me was this sort of vast opening, the most profound kind of awe experience that was completely beyond the body in a way, I would say, at least phenomenologically, and then a returning to ordinary mind, and then a series of insights that, well, went for a really long time, actually. <laughs> kind of weeks, I suppose. And, you know, those insights were really contemplative in nature at the time. So I didn't have any experience with Buddhism, with Hindu, any of the Eastern traditions, basically, that I now am really interested in. I've had a Zen teacher for 10 years and different retreats and so on. But the insights that happened were really Eastern in nature. And then this sort of spurred my curiosity. And so then when I started to read these traditions, I sort of had this just sense of, oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes, this is what I was experiencing or coming to know in that moment. It all sounds kind of big and profound or something, but I was very immature about it back then. You know, I was only 19. And so my mind kind of didn't know what to do with those experiences except for kind of reify them and think that they're special and, and so on. So there's also a lot of undoing that needs to be done after an experience like that. There's more insights to be had. Definitely. Good. So in terms of insight, how does this relate to the meditative experience? I mean, obviously, as you brought up, a lot of meditation uses the word insight in a special way, but in a more general way, how do you see these two things deeply relating? Yeah, I think they're very related. Now I think in a way this connects to our recent paper that you mentioned at the beginning that tries to provide a unifying account <laughs> of deconstructive meditation, which is a little bit ambitious, but I think it was a good first try. Yes. And basically there we frame the progression of meditation or the deconstructive meditation path as going through very crudely focused attention, then open monitoring where you find the kind of Vipassana insight practices and then the non-dual stages of practice and how that happens in terms of predictive processing. 
But there's all sorts of insights that can happen in that deconstruction process. And in particular, of course, some meditation practices, namely Vipassana, really focus on this insight aspect in, in the sense that the whole goal, in a way, is to gain insight into the nature of a mind and you could say reality if you take mind to be reality and the three anicca anatta and dukkha or impermanence not self and suffering and insight into these three characteristics of existence so at the heart of meditation in a way at least some meditation is gaining insight into how the mind works and then there's the question of course of well how does that potentially happen i of course do believe that that happens and that all sorts of insights can happen from meditation, not just those three purely even more mundane sort of psychological insights can happen because we're, well, turning the mind towards itself in this metacognitive way and, and actually just turning attention towards the contents of the mind and our phenomenology. So, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that you would learn something by doing that and thereby restructure your models and gain insight. But I think insight can happen through meditation in various ways. Sometimes it can be more active in the sense of, for example, self-inquiry or the kind of metacognitive or meta-awareness kind of monitoring that happens during meditation. So by inquiry, you direct attention towards certain questions and through that search through the mind for potential insights or solutions. And this inquiry approach, I think, can also restructure our models reveal insight. The other way is through this training of mindfulness, meta-awareness, that we gain insight into how the phenomena that are appearing in our minds, how they act, what are their nature, what do they tend to do, what are the unique characteristics of our emotions and thoughts and how they relate to each other. So that's another way that insight, I think, can unfold now more from the kind of computational neuroscience perspective, there's also ways in which the mind can arrive at insights just simply on its own in the same way that we come to our own aha experiences, for example, while we're having a shower or going to sleep. And that can be through, for example, synaptic pruning. But I like the computational explanation better, which is called Bayesian reduction, probably hard to explain in here right now. But to kind of put this metaphorically, the idea is that if you imagine that in the landscape of the unconscious mind, there's all of these models that look like a forest of models. And then basically when we have the mind in silence or while we're sleeping, these models continue to prune themselves. Or you could say that the unnecessary connections, the unnecessary neural activity patterns of activation start to kind of crumble and fall away. And in this crumbling and falling away of the unnecessary complexity of the mind, then the mind can arrive at new, more refined models of reality. So by giving the system breaks from taking in new information in the sense of, for example, in meditation, where you take a posture of stillness and you direct the attention to one object, you're basically giving I think the system, an opportunity to prune its existing models rather than bombarding it with new information. And this leads to a kind of refinement, a kind of optimization, a model selection that can also induce insights, I think. <laughs> no, that makes perfect sense. I'm curious, do you feel that this model pruning is at the most basic level, about being energy efficient or 
a related concept, just having more and more accurate models that are more and more parsimonious? I mean, I know we're just having to guess here, but what is the impetus behind this pruning? Yeah, well, I would probably at this moment in time side with the predictive processing or free energy minimization account, which presumes that the organism is always trying to reduce uncertainty, both in the short and long term. And uncertainty, we can also think about that as entropy or prediction errors. So the system is constantly trying to make inferences, basically, or you can think about all of our experience and phenomenology, basically, as inferences based on drawn of past experience. So the system is trying to make inferences and trying to reduce the error in its inferences, which translates to uncertainty, which translates to entropy. By reducing this entropy, we get better and better models. By getting better and better models, we get better inferences, we get better actions, we get better chances of survival and doing the things that we want to do. So in terms of the impetus of prerogative, of model optimization, this kind of pruning, I would say it's to indeed reduce uncertainty in the system and optimize both accuracy but also adaptability. Because you also don't want to overfit to your past experiences because the world is changing and unpredictable and we don't know precisely what's going to happen next. And does this pruning activity have a signature? Does it look like rumination? Does it look like dreaming? How does that work? Yeah, I don't think we can zoom in on this in the brain in any kind of useful way also mm-hmm. because it's so brain wide right it's yes. it's kind of happening everywhere i don't know what that would look like it's an interesting question i mean maybe there is ways that people measure synaptic pruning i actually have no idea how how they would measure that yeah. but maybe if you can watch this happen in real time then that would be a correlate you could say of model pruning yeah I guess the reason I'm asking is because, especially in a long retreat, you can kind of, I don't know, I would guess, feel something like this happening. But it's not as if I'm thinking about all the stuff that's happened to me consciously and pouring over experience and thinking about what went right and what went wrong necessarily. So it's presumably happening unconsciously in a way that is maybe we can feel, but not necessarily inspect. Yeah, exactly. I resonate with this sense that meditation kind of leads this almost sense of becoming more simple and more clear and, well, almost feeling like a more refined model. I mean, if you think from this predictive processing, we are an inference, a model. And if this kind of pruning is taking place in meditation, then the phenomenological signature would be something like greater simplicity, greater clarity, greater confidence, all of these kinds of things. So confidence is equated with precision in this predictive processing framework. And if models become more refined, they become more precise explanations of our data in the sense that we assign them more confidence. So we would also naturally feel phenomenologically less uncertainty or then more certainty. Yeah. There's just a whole bunch of stuff that comes up when we're discussing this. A myriad of different directions is very, very interesting. Does your research, Ruben, give us any ability to do this better? Does it give us any practical ways to get more insight or deeper insights or more powerful insights? 
So I really love this question because if I try to think about, you know, what my goal or something that really lights me up also as a researcher, it is to find ways in which the science can feed back onto how we can actually in a practical experiential way attain insight or just simply better understanding of the world and also happiness, compassion, all of this, all the good stuff. And, you know, I don't know if I've achieved that yet, but I think we're at an exciting stage now scientifically where that is beginning to be possible. And that's because I think for the first time, I think our scientific models of how the brain works, how the organism works, how we construct experience all the way from the present moment up to our most abstract sense of ourselves, our ability to project into the past and the future, the imaginative realms of experience, all of it. I think our models of that are starting to get good enough to compete with some of these ancient models that were derived through you know, first-person phenomenological investigation. This means that the science can also begin to feed back onto the first-person practices, how we should be meditating, how we should be working with our mind in order to get the most refined models and to achieve insight. In a way, I think this is maybe not trying to do, but what's possible with the kind of model that we proposed, because I do think it, in a way, is mechanistically more refined than what's out there at the moment, but also it can be understood at multiple levels. So for example, to speak about it very heuristically, in a kind of crude way, we differentiate the mind in terms of layers of the self. And so right at the top, we describe the narrative self. And, you know, we weren't the first people to describe this as a construct that's used a lot in cognitive neuroscience. And that's all our abstract thoughts about ourselves in projections into the past and the future, our autobiographical selves. And then below that, at a less abstract level of processing the brain at an earlier stage of processing at a brain at a faster stage of processing, we have our experiencing self. That is the part of ourself that is embodied and in touch with the sensory experiences that we colloquially take to be the now. And then below that, we have that which even precedes the experiencing self, which would be awareness, because awareness is required for an experiencing self to arise and an experiencing self is required in order to ruminate about that self. And we also see this progression of processing very clearly in the brain from lower order or lower cortical regions to higher cortical regions. And also in time, this is simply just how the brain constructs experience from concrete to abstract. This is sort of mainstream neuroscience. And then if you map that onto the phenomenology of meditation, it's like a perfect match basically, where people describe as they practice meditation, gradually letting go deeper and deeper this abstract processing. So thinking about really reified mind wandering where you get caught in an episode and you're completely lost in that to less mind wandering, less thinking, more experiencing, more experiencing, letting go of experiencing, stepping back from experiencing, deconstructing even this idea that there is a self experiencing and then dropping deeper and deeper and deeper until perhaps the system is left with the only thing that's necessary for all experience, which is the fact that there is an awareness of experience. And then if you take away experience, naturally at this very deconstructed state, which again, I think maps perfectly on the way that we understand that the brain constructs experience, you're left with a kind of 
ground without prediction, without inference, without categorization, without conceptualization. I mean, these early stages of processing in the neural hierarchy, neuroscientists call that non-conceptual, temporally precise, non-verbal, non-linguistic, all of these things, which is exactly what is talked about in the meditative traditions in terms of the phenomenology as well. So I think this is nice. And also what's cool about this, thinking about it this way, it explains why we talk about the present moment and now be here now, because basically being here now is annihilation to our concepts, actually more than our concepts, all our experience, if you take that not to be conceptual on a level that is conceptual as well. Because in order to have an experience, in order to have a thought, in order to have anything, including a self, or even to have attention for that matter, requires some regularities over time. It requires projecting the past from the past, basically. And so to have this ideal in meditation of being here now is basically to remove the possibility of experience altogether, to remove the possibility of any kind of abstract conceptualization. And literally in neuroscience, it's talked about as temporal processing. So how temporally deep is the processing? How far across time are you tracking the regularities in experience? So if you're tracking the regularities in experience for two seconds, let's say with my speech right now, all you hear is syllables or sounds. If you're tracking it for 10 seconds, you get sentences. If you're tracking it for longer periods, you're getting you know everything that I'm saying. But if you're tracking it for no seconds, you don't get anything. <laughs> and so does that point towards a neurotype experience or does that point towards an empty experience that still contains sound? I think ultimately neuroda. I mean, the most deconstructed state. It's neuroda, the cessation of perception, feeling, consciousness, everything that we take to be an experience. That's the logical consequence of being in the here and now. Also from the brain's perspective, because you can't have an experience without the past. It's so fascinating because, of course, one would think that this kind of pushing the envelope to the furthest end or to zero experience would be the most revelatory and yet, of course, these kind of neurotic experiences, as powerful as they are, and they are, of course, incredibly powerful and life-changing and so on, are not considered to be the most insight-producing experiences, mm. right? This is the historical Buddha's big insight. Hey, Naroda is not enough, to use Buddhist language, to have a cessation is not enough. You have to have insight into what's arising beyond that neurotic experience. Yeah, and this is why it's also important to differentiate, for example, our model of the, let's say, process of deconstructing the mind and then what are the ultimate goals of different traditions. And we also make that caveat because I think it depends a bit on the tradition. And as you say, if you think about canonical texts, it's more about the insight into dependent origination that arises through going through this process many times and reaching Niroda and fruition and then seeing these things reemerge and put together. And then you see how the mind works by seeing it arise. Level after level after level of this predictive processing. Exactly. And maybe you could also add into that if you think about waking up and growing up, that there's also other work that needs to happen at the higher levels of the predictive processing hierarchy as well, in order to make the system the most adaptable and wholesome possible. That's really fascinating. I'm curious to go back to the question, do we have any concrete 
practical things yet coming out of this work in terms of how to do this better? You mean how to deconstruct the mind better or how yes, to meditate? Yes. Because what you would need there is kind of a complex experiment. So th this is a short way of saying, no, I don't think we have that yet. But, <laughs> but what you would need is, for instance, and again, I'm not really suggesting we do this because our model was never intended to be a guide for how one should meditate. But what you would need to do is take something like a neuroscience explanation, an empirically derived explanation of how the brain constructs and how to deconstruct and go through these stages of insight, have one group of participants go through a meditation retreat using these instructions really derived from our understanding of how the brain constructs experience and how to work with that. And then you have a control group taught by exactly the same person, but from, let's say, these more canonical kind of ways of teaching. And then you compare outcomes. Maybe you want to have another third group just for good measure. But that's probably how you would then begin to start to derive an empirically based estimate of which kinds of tools for teaching meditation are the most valuable and work the best. And then you could try to evaluate outcomes in the meditation. And I don't even know how exactly you would do that because, again, the goals of the traditions vary so much. So this is a kind of ambitious project and lofty goals. In any case, I think it's really valuable that people like you and I think many others who teach meditation are thinking about how the brain works. And simply, naturally, through your awareness of that, it's feeding into the way that you embody the Dharma and how you teach Buddhism and meditation, I think. And that's my sense from many teachers. So I think in that way, it also kind of practically already kind of permeates the world of meditation. Absolutely. These types of ideas of predictive processing and other neuroscience insight into the meditative brain or brains doing things that look similar to meditation, including psychedelics and so on, in some mm -hmm. ways, of course, that's where all the heat is. And, you know, one of my main teachers, Shinzen Young, is ensconced in a big neuroscience department in New Mexico or, I mean, in Arizona right now and so on. It's really going in this direction in a big way. Ruben, for the listeners who haven't read your paper, and the paper is called From Many to None or One, Meditation and the Plasticity of the Predictive Mind, written together with Helen Slachter. Can you just summarize what you wrote about in that paper? Okay, yeah, it's a long paper, but let's have a crack. So, <laughs> you know, we start the paper by coming at this approach that there's evidence going back many thousands of years that people through contemplative practices have been able to access states of mind far outside the ordinary mind where they report, for example, the absence of space, time, self, agency, all these things we take for granted as fundamental to who we are and what we are in this world. And we take that as interesting in terms of our desire to understand the plasticity of the mind. And particularly what we've called top-down plasticity of the mind, that is the voluntary ability for a human being to change themselves from within. You know, we have lots of influences from the outside world that can also lead to breakdowns in self-time space. We can have psychotic episodes, schizophrenia, brain trauma, aging, all of these things that can dramatically affect the way we experience reality. So there's no doubt that these things are malleable 
But then there's also all of these people who claim to intentionally be able to do these things with their mind. So there's no logical reason that someone couldn't do this, but then there's not only no logical reason why they couldn't do it, there's all this evidence that people do do it and a growing empirical basis for that. And so the idea is to try to use meditation as a way to understand the plasticity of the mind and by doing so, understand how the brain constructs experience and deconstructs it. So first we build a picture of what is our current understanding of how the brain constructs experience using the predictive processing framework, which is basically, I think for the first time, a fairly persuasive, mathematically tractable, computational model of how the brain and body action, emotion, thought, and everything else works that's derived from really elegant axioms all the way up. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be perfect, no model is, but it's by far, I think, the best we have and perhaps the only real contender in the space of explaining how all of these phenomena work together. That's not ridiculously modular, which is the historically how cognitive science is done. So we use this model to describe how the brain constructs experience, which we've touched on already during this conversation, which is from basically the here and now, but the pure here and now, of course, doesn't exist because there is no experience to be had that's truly here and now. But from there, through a process of abstraction of predictions of our interoceptive experience that is of our body and all of the experiences that we take to be outside of the body, we gradually predict a model of the world. And this model of the world is hierarchical. It's layered. You can also think about this maybe like as an onion. So on the outside, there's the precise sort of sensory impressions, you could say. This is really like if you think about sound, for example, that's like pure sound at the millisecond level that the brain is taking in. And then that's on the outside of this onion. And then as you go deeper in the onion, as the brain processes this information further, you abstract further and further and integrate information in time. So again, just using the sound example, you have this very pure sound. Then you have syllables if you abstract a little bit further. Then you have words if you abstract a little bit further. Then you have sentences. Then you have thoughts. Then you embed yourself in these sentences and thoughts. And then you're fully in the center of this onion and you're totally abstracted from your input. And input is still kind of a prediction as well. So the brain abstracts away from the here and now using past information in order to derive those abstractions. And basically all of our experience is thought to be an inference, an inference derived from past experience. And what is actually processed is the mistakes that we make in our inferential process. So then we don't need to take in the world anew every time. We just take in what we fail to predict correctly. That makes what we're experiencing right now a kind of simulation. And when that simulation fails to do well, we update the simulation. This we experience often. For example, we see something in the corner of our eye and we see it one way and then we make an eye movement there and suddenly it switches and we see something completely different. Or we hear one thing and then we tune in a little bit deeper and we hear something else, you know, and it restructures. So the simulation switches its prediction. 
This is a very crude description of how predictive processing works. And we combined this understanding with the deconstructive process of meditation. And we tried to give a picture of how through this predictive processing lens, basically meditation works all the way from when somebody first begins meditation, you imagine them in the middle of this onion, spending a lot of their time in this sort of self-centered ruminatory state, highly abstracted habitually and assigning a lot of precision, which we mentioned earlier, or confidence to these ruminations and a lot of identification. So we start from there and then we try to give a picture of how from this center of this onion you expand out or go in and deconstruct this predictive hierarchy. So maybe I'll just paint this as a kind of journey of meditation because it's just easier maybe to follow the narrative that way. So if you imagine somebody first starts a meditation practice, they're coming in with this self-centered rumination, this center of this onion. They are usually directed to guide their attention to something in the sensory experience or in the body or kind of quintessentially the breath. And the idea is that you bring attention to the breath through a kind of focused attention. And whenever the mind flips back out due to its habitual tendency to stay in this abstracted mode into that abstracted thinking mode, you bring it back to the object of your present or colloquially present sensory experience. And you do this over and over again until you kind of move out of the center of this onion or down this predictive processing hierarchy, such that there's a little bit of stability in this less abstract form, this sensory experiencing. And this happens through the mechanism of precision weighting. And precision weighting is equated with attention in the predictive processing scheme, which basically is the computational mechanism that assigns reality to something, basically whether we believe that it exists, whether it's our confidence in it. Um, and we experience this, of course, with attention. If, unless our attention is on something, it it kind of doesn't really exist to us. So we basically use this power of attention to deconstruct the hierarchy a little bit and reach some stability where the mind isn't constantly caught in this abstract mode. And then when there's some stability there, we go with the next stage of practice. And here we come into Vipassana practice or what in the scientific literature we call open monitoring. This can also include lots of other uh, practices where you maintain a more open scope of awareness such that any contents can still come into your capture attention. That could be your sensory experience or also sometimes these abstract thinking, but basically Instead, unlike the focused attention where one thing is assigned high precision in order to de-abstract, the system is also now letting go of that preferential nature to some extent, the evaluative nature, the guiding of attention, because all of these are still abstract activities of the mind or what we could call mental actions. So they are still activities or doings that we are engaging in. So that is attention to a particular thing at the preference of other things. And so that is released in favor of this more meta-awareness kind of monitoring of experience. 
And this allows the system to go further out in that onion or again lower in that predictive hierarchy because now there's not any more the doing of guided attention, at least in such a rigid way. There's also not the evaluation and preferential nature of awareness anymore. And there's the insight aspect where now the system is able to observe what it seems to be naturally emerging in experience, which is all the habitual content of the mind. And so then the system at this stage of open monitoring or Vipassana practice can gain insight into the phenomena of the mind, but also rest in a deeper stage of meditation. It corresponds in our model to a lower stage in the predictive processing hierarchy, a more embodied present moment experiencing self. So this is the move from the narrative to the experiencing through focused attention, then de-reification, from the experiencing self using Vipassana and this meta-awareness or open monitoring. So now the system is starting to rest lower in the predictive processing hierarchy. There's some stability there. There's more witnessing, less experiencing. And so now nothing is getting really assigned preferential precision. So experiencing itself also starts to fade in the background because if you don't give it attention, you don't give it precision, you don't give it confidence, you don't give it reality, it doesn't really (laughs) exist in terms of how this scheme works. So basically Mm. now the field of experience itself starts to fade away into the background in favor of a kind of pure subjectivity or witnessing. And so the system starts instead to assign precision to subjectivity, to observation, to the witnessing itself. And then comes the next stage of practice. Because still at this phase, one abstraction that is still heavily built into the predictive processing hierarchy is the idea of a subject-object. So that's very fundamental because in order to interact with any kind of object as outside of ourself, we need to model ourself and then that object and the difference between them and the distance between them. There's something out there and there's something in here. There's a separation between self and whatever is the object of our observation. So this assumption is still there. And then there's all these nice tools that the meditation traditions have, the non-dual traditions and the non-dual meditations. For example, in Tibetan, you have Mahamudra and Dzogchen, of course, you have Shikantaza and Zen, you have the self-inquiry practices of Advaita and Hinduism. And I think all of these basically try to address this very foundational assumption of a subject-object prediction in the system. So this is a kind of very foundational, low level of this hierarchy. Now we're getting right to the base, you could say, of now the pyramid or this onion, however you're visualizing it at this point. (laughs) But what's left is still some abstraction, and that abstraction is a subject, an object, subtle sense of selfing, subtle sense of something other than the selfing, whatever that might be. It could be very ambiguous at this point. It could be some sense of spaciousness. It could be some sense of consciousness, whatever it is. But then by addressing this through these practices, and usually this is where the practice instructions get really tricky because you have to tell someone to do not doing, which is really hard because basically you're trying to get the system to stop predicting, but you can't do that through an instruction because then, well, the system will just continue trying to predict according to that instruction. That's right. It's a tricky moment. (laughs) Very tricky. 
And so then the way we conceptualize this in the paper is that these practices kind of set up the conditions for that prediction to release. In a way, you could think of all of meditation already kind of setting up the conditions for this release to happen. I mean, if you think about the stillness, the lack of active inference, which is the kind of technical term in predictive processing where we engage in any kind of action, everything in meditation is basically stopping the tendency for action, for doing. And so especially these non-dual practices emphasize this non-doing. If you take, for example, Shinkantaza and Zen or just sitting, that's an obvious emphasis of, you know, really do nothing, which is sometimes not a helpful instruction. Other traditions use more like, you know, discover the underlying awareness that's always there or open presence, these, these kinds of things, which also kind of point to something that the mind cannot predict about. And so perhaps create the opportunity for these predictions to break down. Other times there's really the focus on having maybe the teacher already able to embody something so close to that state. And so this embodiment can help the student also begin to resonate with the possibility of that experience and to let go. And of course, you can also think about other traditions that use more like devotional practices, all of those can also potentially lead to letting go of these really fundamental predictions. So I think people just get really creative at that final stage to try to break down that subject-object distinction or just to basically let go of the habitual tendency to predict away from the here and now. And there's many ways that that can happen. We focus in the paper on a few of these non-dual practices that really explicitly point to a non-dual awareness beyond subject-object by trying to recognize this background assumption prior to experience. Yeah. This model you're using, particularly the unfolding depth of these meditation practices, of course, I'm sure you've heard this over and over, is just intensely resonant for meditators or especially people who've done a number of different traditions or who have gone through decades of a single tradition. I mean, this is the way this is laid out across the board. And so it's so interesting that it fits so well with this predictive processing model. That is the point, that these things seem to be saying something incredibly similar, maybe using quite different language. Yes, and shockingly so. I have to say, in doing this, it was surprising to me as well how it all came together. And there wasn't this effort of trying to, you know, oh, here's what meditators say, let's try to fit this in into how the brain works. No, it was, here's how predictive processing works. Now let's try to understand meditation from this perspective. The whole thing started with predictive processing and being like, this model's so freaking cool and getting excited about having this broad understanding of how the mind generates experience and then stepping over to think about how these meditation practices might fit in. And it is beautiful that they fit so well. Yeah, it's just hair-raising. It's like, oh, man, that is just absolutely how that works. Now, on the other hand, we come back to this idea of Naroda, and it fits in here in an interesting way. So if we're talking about an experience, let's just make sure we're talking about the same thing, an experience where there's zero sense input of any kind, and yet there's still awareness. There's the sense of being conscious or alert, but there's zero input from the senses. 
So are you with me so far? Do we agree that that's pretty much? Yes, this is interesting because right at the heart of my empirical work right now is a case study on Nirodha Samapati. Yes. I'm really interested in this to do work on it experimentally because, of course, in terms of our model, that is the most deconstructed state of the mind. And I've been trying to understand this state in many different ways. And my understanding is that in the Niroda Samapati, in the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness, there is really no experience whatsoever. There is nothing. There is no sense of anything having happened whatsoever. And I think maybe there is some debate to be had about this. But what my understanding is that it's immediately after the cessation that there is still the potential to discover this sort of unconditioned ground awareness But the Niroda itself is a complete absence. And and so just to give you an example, the meditator that we're working with right now is purportedly capable of going into this state for up to six days and on demand. And we've now collected data of him doing this over shorter periods. And the discussions we've had with him very much is that you could hit him with a baseball bat in this state and he'd have no idea. And there is no sense that anything has happened during the time that one is actually cessated. But what is important, of course, is where the mind turns at the moment of returning from that neurota state. I wonder how that then connects with you. Well, there's several different descriptions here. The sort of absence type of neurota where there's just a blank spot in experience that I would describe as a fruition experience as described in Theravada Buddhism, where that can Mm -hmm. be very short or very long, and the time doesn't matter because it's just a blank spot. Uh And so that's how you do stream entry. That's a fruition experience. There's another thing described, and this is what I would describe as Narodas Mapapti or Nirvakalpa Samadhi or whatever, that is more akin to, we would say, deep sleep without dreams, yet there is some kind of awareness there. Not awareness of time passing and not awareness of anything at all, except that it's not lights out in the sense of total unconsciousness. Mm -hmm. And that too can go on for quite a long time. And both of these things are called cessation. Mm -hmm. And yet they're slightly different. And yet both of these can be tremendously life-changing. I follow that totally. So then it's kind of okay where we pin exactly the words. Either way, we're looking at zero temporal depth, right? We're in the absolute present moment. And what's interesting is, as I was saying before, this is not considered to be the end of the journey by any means. In fact, if we were to look at let's say, a, a Tibetan Buddhist like Dzogchen or Mahamudra model or a non-dual Hindu tantric model. This is, in fact, the first part of the model. That's just still shamatha, right? We're just coming to the total end of shamatha. And then after that, using that depth of clarity and the power of focus and all that that we've gotten through going that deep and understanding the construction of the mind that totally, we then would do a process of vipassana, not vipassana, but vipassana, where instead of looking at the three marks of existence, as you said, the impermanence and the no self and the suffering qualities, all we're concerned with is noticing the emptiness of what's arising and then coming back into 
experience coming mm-hmm. back into instead of no experience in Naroda, coming back into the full experience of life with this tremendous insight into emptiness that we're continuously bringing with us. So what's so interesting to me is that in this way, in this non-dual model, there's a mismatch between what you're describing and how we would really think about how to get the deepest kinds of insights that are truly non-dual, where it's not just absolutely transcendental, meaning just down to zero, but I'm just going to speak metaphorically here, bringing that zeroness back into the fullness of experience. Mm-hmm. And having those two things arise together, where each moment of experience is seen to have that full, you're totally aware of the emptiness of the prediction, and yet at the same time, it's not just a blank nothing. So I'm curious how you react to that. Well, I think it's beautifully said. So we just quite recently submitted an abstract because we were asked to contribute to a special issue in a journal where we basically want to, I don't know if this will be the title yet, but go from the none to the many and talk about constructive meditation practices and all of the stuff that comes after the process of deconstruction. And indeed, we've been trying to, in a way, avoid some of the ultimate goals of these practices again, for precisely the reason that they really tend to be quite variable. But it's totally the case that any kind of journey of meditation must include the re-emerging and all of the insight and all of the integration associated with what happens after deconstruction. So step one, I think, was to kind of paint a picture of how this deconstruction process works. And step two, which I've been thinking about a lot and want to devote a lot of the coming year to is in painting a picture of how constructive meditation works from the perspective of predictive processing and all the associated insights that you described, but also, you know, things like tantra practices, deity practices, and then thinking more about the Brahma Viharas, for instance, and putting all of these together. And also then You know, I think it gets a little bit tricky, scientifically speaking, to start to talk about the point where the non-duality starts to pervade everyday life. I think this is a really interesting thing that I don't know if I have figured out in terms of predictive processing yet. One possibility is, is still associated maybe with this precision weighting aspect of what's going on in the sense that these previous insights into how real and what is the nature of phenomena, phenomena after the return of the deconstruction. And so they become an inherent understanding of all that arises. So I just want to say in painting this picture of deconstructing the hierarchical mind, I again want to emphasize really that the goal isn't simply to deconstruct. I don't think that's at the heart of any of these meditation traditions just to deconstruct, but this is just the first step of understanding how this process works. And even in thinking about, for instance, neurotosamapati, which under at least one framework is a complete state of unconsciousness. When I speak to meditation practitioners who work with that, it's not about reaching this unconsciousness. It's not about that at all. In fact, that's not really important. What's important is what the system is able to recognize upon returning out of this state when it's completely fresh and has the opportunity to see what's there 
basically. And I think this then starts to be where you get a better convergence between, for example, the later traditions of Buddhism, but also Hindu non-duality, where there's a focus on instead in that primordial non-dual awareness or the unconditioned element that is able to be also discovered potentially without this full going unconscious state. Yes, it seems like the real power of the full unconscious kind of Neroda is watching the brain reboot layer by layer by layer afterwards. Right, exactly. That's the opportunity. I mean, if you think about this from the neuroscientific perspective, where you get to see indeed the predictive hierarchy reemerge all the way from no categorical predictions all the way up to our more ordinary mind consciousness. And potentially, if there's some mindfulness there, then capacity to observe that process, which might, for example, be developed by doing that multiple times, then the system gets better and better insight into how the mind makes itself. So unfortunately, Ruben, today that's all we have time for. We're just getting into the really meaty material and it's time to say goodbye but it's been an incredible pleasure to have you here on the podcast today so thank you so much thank you i've enjoyed this a lot and i feel super inspired so thank you for this conversation you too all right have a great one ciao That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, 
or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash signup or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>